Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware that the story we're bringing you today features the names of people who are deceased. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we ask the academic experts to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. I'm Sananda Cray. Fresh northwesterly breeze fills the sails of an exact replica of Captain Cook's three-masted Whitby Bark Endeavour as it sails down the River Derwent in Tasmania. The replica was brought to Hobart by the United and South British Insurance Group during the bicentenary celebrations of Captain Cook's discovery of Australia. Not only is it accurate in every historic... In 1970, it was the bicentenary of Captain James Cook's arrival in Australia. An official commemoration events were at fever pitch but not everyone was celebrating. An Aboriginal pastor, one of the angry speakers at a meeting called last night to boycott the Cook Bicentenary. And if the mood wasn't angry, it was sad. As part of our coverage of the 250th anniversary of Cook's arrival in the Pacific, The Conversations published a really fascinating essay by the University of Tasmania historians Kate Darian-Smith and Katrina Schlanke. It's titled Cooking the Books, How Reenactments of the Endeavour's Voyage perpetuate myths of Australia's discovery. You can see it on theconversation.com. But today on the podcast, Kate Darian-Smith talks with The Conversation's Phoebe Roth about how the way we've commemorated Cook's arrival has really changed over time, from military displays in 1870 to waning interest in Cook in the 1950s, all the way to now, 250 years since Cook first set foot in Australia. There have been commemorations of Cook's landfall at Botany Bay in 1770 for well over a century. And as early as 1822, uh, Sydney's Philosophical Society erected a plaque at Cornell, which is on the headland of Botany Bay. By 1864, the Australian Patriotic Association had uh, found an exact site they claimed, uh, where Cook had landed. And following the 1870 centenary of Cook's landfall, uh, annual British, pro-British celebrations were held at Botany Bay. They really privileged Cook as the non-convict founder of the British colony of New South Wales and by extension the other Australian colonies. The emphasis on Cook, I think, shored up British rights over possible challenges from French and Dutch interests. That, that, that is, looking back, that was what Cook's claim had done. But the, the commemorations in the 19th century usually included flag-raising ceremonies, some sort of military display and a speech from the governor and other dignitaries gathered together. Occasional note uh, was made of Cook's death as well in newspapers and opinion pieces. In the 1888 centennial of the First Fleet, the arrival of the First Fleet in New South Wales, although that really didn't have anything to do with Cook, nonetheless, the largest triumphal arch in Sydney... Uh, to to mark that centennial was adorned with Cook's image and a model of the endeavour. So I I think that the commemorations of Cook from quite early on also started to get mixed up 
with the arrival of the First Fleet, uh, very different event, and both Cook and Philip sometimes were mixed up, and I think there was some confusion about them in the past, some confusion which exists today. And can you tell us about the 1901 reenactments? Did they have some of the same qualities? Well, the inauguration of the of the Commonwealth of Australia in January 1901 uh, did include a celebration and a commemoration of Cook's landing, and I think this is very interesting. The uh, new nation going forward, looking to the past and what was seen from a settler perspective as that moment of British discovery. So there was a major reenactment at Cornell down in Botany Bay uh, that was headlined in the newspapers as the second coming of Cook. This spectacle attracted a very large crowd, well over 5,000 people, and about 1,000 of them were invited into a special marquee where they enjoyed uh, enjoyed a champagne luncheon. Uh, So it's a civic event, but it's also an event very much aimed at a large population. This was quite an elaborate reenactment. Uh, The endeavour itself was represented by a local fishing vessel, uh, the Fanny Fisher, and there were actors playing Cook, his sailors and marines, and figures such as Joseph Banks. Once ashore, the British party, led by Cook, encountered 25 or so Aboriginal men, again actors and performers, who were armed with spears and decorated with feathers and ochre. And they encountered each other, the two groups on the beach. A gun was fired overhead and then the figure of Cook ordered a a sailor to shoot before making an imperial claim on the continent of Australia. The actors playing Cook and Joseph Banks and a nymph, uh, a young woman who was representing Australia, then gave speeches on on a platform and talked about the greatness and unity of the Britannia of the Southern Ocean, referring, of course, to the new nation of Australia. I think in that reenactment, it's important to note that while an Aboriginal community is just across the bay living at La Perouse, the reenactment itself involved a troop of uh, Indigenous men who had been brought from Queensland. They were directed by a rather colourful figure, a parliamentarian and entrepreneur, Archibald Meston, who had previously been involved in touring groups of Indigenous performers throughout Australia in what he called a, a Wild Australia show. And one of the highlights, according to the Sydney newspapers, was the group of Aboriginal men. Uh, they later on went and did performances of spear throwing and other cultural activities. But it's not really known how they were recruited to perform in this reenactment or indeed if they were paid or compensated for it. And you're right that after the 1951 Federation Jubilee, interest in Cook waned and the formalities were abandoned. Why do you think that happened? 
If we look at what's happening during the 20th century in terms of reenactments to commemorate Cook's landfall, we see really a, a petering off of interest in the 1950s. And certainly, although there still were some speeches and dignitaries turning up at Cornell during the first decades of the century, and a full-scale reenactment again was staged in 1951 for the, the Jubilee or the 50 Years of Federation. Interest in Cook as a significant figure and interest in commemorating the moment of his arrival at Botany Bay started to wane. Why does this happen? I think that in that period after war, as Australia is opening its gates to large-scale migration, there's, there's a huge focus on the nation modernising, industrialising, looking to the future. And certainly by the 60s, you're getting a real upsurge of interest in Australian history in Australia, by the 70s, a rise of, of uh, really quite um, strong Australian nationalism around the arts and around culture, a revised interest in Australian history. I think the general population didn't want to really look at Cook and that moment of foundation. They wanted to look more broadly at what was happening in Australian society then. So it's a, it's a moment of not looking so much to the past but focusing on Australia's future and its, in a sense, its independence from Britain as a modern nation. And then in 1970, there's the upsurge again that you describe. Well, look, the bicentenary of Cook's Australian landing in 1970, uh, there was suddenly interest in Cook. And partly this was because the bicentenary coincided with a visit by the Queen. The Queen was a very popular figure in Australia at the time. She came with Prince Philip and quite a large entourage. And she was there to observe as the head of state of Australia the commemorations around the Cook's Landing. But in that lead-up to the bi that bicentenary in 1970, Cook was suddenly everywhere. There was quite a lot of government money available, a lot of memorabilia was produced about Cook. There were all kinds of new memorials erected right across the country. There were some reenactments in various forms of Cook's arrival in many small towns throughout Australia. So there was a sudden, if you like, flurry of activity and interest in Cook and there were several months of events. Cook sits very much as a figure within a displays of nationalism about the growth of the uh, Australian nation and there was a very elaborate reenactment at Cornell that the Queen came and observed. It was directed by musical theatre officiando Hayes Gordon, so it had a real theatrical flair and the spectacle was also designed very much for global television. And I think it's important that by that 1970 
reenactment of Cook's Landing, the reenactment itself is a televised event and is staged as such. A crowd of over 50,000 people gathered at Canal. Many of them had come the night before to get, you know, great seats. But at the time, it was really discussed, was Cook the attraction or was it the Queen? And I think that it seems that the Queen brought a particular glamour. In this reenactment, emphasis was very much placed on, according to the press, the historical accuracy of the spectacle. But nonetheless, it was as much a fiction as other reenactments had been. And during the 1970s event, you write in your piece, diverse Aboriginal protests were taking place, although they weren't so much covered by the press. Can you tell us a bit about what happened there? In 1970, it's a very different moment than uh, a century earlier. For a start, we've had a growth in a consciousness in Australia, I think, of the history of dispossession of Indigenous peoples in Australia. And there is a rising and uh, growing stronger uh, movement within the Indigenous community supported by non-Indigenous Australians for uh, land rights, full citizenship and equality. So it's not surprising that while, again, at Cornell you had the spectacle of the reenactment of Cook's Landing attended by the Queen, that elsewhere there are a number of Aboriginal protests right across the country, primarily in New South Wales, but also, for instance, there is a Virgil held outside Parliament House in Canberra. At La Perouse, opposite Cornell, again at Botany Bay, a large number of people gathered. The Aboriginal poet and activist, then known as Kath Walker, but later um, going by the name of Ojuru Nunakal, was among hundreds who let go wreaths into the sea. And the idea was that the waves would take the wreaths and their mourning wreaths over to the reenactment at Canal, and possibly the Queen might see them. So I think it was seen very much as a day of mourning for Aboriginal activists right across Australia. But the press in attention at the time was very much on the Queen, the royal family, the reenactment, the mainstream story, if you like. And there was another reenactment in 1970 at Cooktown, is that right? Yes, Cooktown, uh, where the original Endeavour had spent seven weeks at, at Cooktown undergoing repairs after they'd run aground on the Great uh, Barrier Reef. And Cooktown had a long record of cook-related performances, though these were somewhat sporadic. In 1970, the Queen travelled north and and saw a second reenactment in Cooktown, again with a performance. This one involved a battle with Aboriginal people as Cook landed and took possession. And since then, there has been a, particularly over the last decade or so, quite an active set of of reenactments at Cooktown, again 
the main ones have were down at Botany Bay, but there's this northern smaller reenactments. So fast forward to now, the 250th anniversary of Cook's arrival coming up in April. What do you make of the way Cook commemorations are happening today? Look, I think in some ways that this is a very interesting moment to think about Cook's role in Australia. And I think it's a moment where if we were to even think about reenactments, we could think about possibilities and opportunities. For example, there are critical reenactments that are part of modern historical discourse and certainly uh, really thinking about what happened when Cook stepped ashore, for instance, at Botany Bay, would, I think, be an opportunity to think more broadly about that moment and its ramifications for Australian life and what they mean now. So I, I suppose I think there's an opportunity if we're thinking about this key moment in Cook's anniversary to really think about what does that mean? What does that mean for Indigenous communities? What does that mean for Australia uh, more generally? And to also perhaps link it up to... I mean, we've had a lot of discussion around Australia Day. Certainly, I think attitudes towards Australia Day are changing and have changed. We've seen quite a lot of debates and moments of contestation. I think Cook does sit... Uh, again, with Australia Day, those those moments, imperial moments of colonisation and the way in which Australian society is founded on dispossession of Indigenous people. I, I think, too, that, that actually one of the issues that's interesting for me is there hasn't been much discussion about what that means. But I think that if we're looking historically over a century of reenactments of Cook's Landing, we are also looking at those different moments in the way that the past comes into the present. One of the issues, I think, is around the violence of the encounter, for instance, at Botany Bay between Cook, his party and the Aboriginal men that they encountered. And Cook's journal is quite explicit about that. He raised his musket, he fired directly at two Aboriginal men who approached. You know, I think confronting and discussing those violent moments is quite confronting for many Australians, but also sits within wider discussions about Aboriginal rights and equality in today's Australia. Absolutely. And what about the unofficial discussion? Do you think we as a nation are changing the way we feel when discussing these big moments with regards to British arrival in Australia? I think attitudes are changing. Uh, Cook has been an interesting figure in Australia and always sat as a figure that had a greater national reach, for instance, than Philip and the arrival of the First Fleet, a very New South Wales moment, a moment very much associated with convict and, and, the, and the penal colony that in New South Wales. But Cook, over time, has had a broader reach. 
I think for a number of Aboriginal people, he becomes the symbolic figure of British imperialism and the claiming of Australia in ways that resonate out across many communities. Now, though, we need to really think, what does Cook stand for and what does he mean? And I mean that culturally for younger generations. Does he have that almost iconic status that he would have had for white Australians a century ago? And how do we use this 250th anniversary to really open new sorts of discussions? I think, as we've seen in Australia Day, those discussions, this is very linked and I think we are opening up to perhaps less official conversations but nonetheless a murmur about what what that means. And I think that really thinking critically about that moment in our relation to contemporary political events, not, not least the Uluru statement from the heart... I think does give us a space to have those conversations. I'd like to see us having them broadly. I'd like to see us having them with the government involved and with many people coming into the conversations. But I do hope that that, uh, there can be more reassessments and rethinking about Australia's past and what that means for the sort of nation we want to be now. Are things changing? In what way would you say they are and in what ways are they perhaps not? So if we're thinking about the place of Cook in Australian society, yes, I think his image has clearly changed over time, just as the way that that landing at Botany Bay has been commemorated over time. I don't think Cook has the same iconic or symbolic status Uh, for um, settler Australians that he had 100 years ago, although I think uh, there are always small groups in Australia that are very passionate about Cook, and I don't think we we want to detract from his remarkable feats as as a navigator and the voyages that he took into the Pacific. But I think what has changed is perhaps a more critical eye on what that moment meant for Australia and greater recognition that we have seen increasing over, certainly over this century and and, uh, increasing about the impact of the arrival of the British and then settler Australians into our continent and what that really meant for Aboriginal people. If we look at the way that, that, for instance, the history of cultural contact and encounter is now taught in some schools, not in all schools, but very different kinds of narratives about Cook and what British settlement meant in Australia than we would have seen 50 years ago. So I do think there is a, a far greater understanding that the settlement of Australia is one that dispossesses, pushes aside... It's very violent towards Aboriginal people. And is there anything else that's being left out of the discussion? I think that one thing that may be left out of the discussion 
and again is quite confronting is the actual violence of some of those encounters. In some of the earlier reenactments that I've mentioned, it was not the figure of Cook as an actor who pulled out the musket and shot Aboriginal people. So the, the violence is removed from him personally. Yet his, his journal uh, talks about him as a, himself firing the musket. So I think, you know, there, 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 that actual violence, whether it's in the person of Cook or whether it's in the whole party, is not often directly talked about and certainly hasn't been in the past. And I think it's important to acknowledge that, that violence, to move beyond, to talk about what can we do now, to think of Cook, to review our, you know, review our history, look at those moments and uh, then work through how we go forward together. And, and I think one of the encouraging words that has come up in some of the rather limited discussion so far about this Cook anniversary is that word reconciliation in prominence that we, we wouldn't have seen, certainly not in 1970. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't discussed that you think is important or interesting? Look, I think that uh, I'll just return to that, that question or, or that issue around opportunities. The fact that, that looking at this 250th anniversary of Cook exploring in the Pacific in 1770. I think there are possibilities for more discussion. There's thinking about how we might work and, and talk with Indigenous thinkers, Indigenous artists to reimagine what that encounter involved, to, to think through a more connected future together. But you know, there is, there is that sort of restorative work of confronting the past and taking it forward that I think is the real opportunity here and I do hope that it's been taken up. There's been several million dollars redirected uh, to these Cook anniversary activities. It's a significant enough sums of money for us really to have a more robust discussion and to think beyond just the simple narrative of exploration to think how we could reimagine it. And if there are to be reenactments of those moments on the beach, I'd like to see them be critical, be addressing the past, being looking to be more historically accurate, if you like, bringing in that cultural contact moment and all of its violence and pathos, but t doing something with it and taking it forward. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation. I'm Sananda Cray. Special thanks today to Kate Darian-Smith for taking the time to talk to us and to Phoebe Roth for interviewing her. And special thanks to Sophia Morris for editing today's episode. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks. And you can read a full list of credits and sign up for our daily newsletter all on our website at theconversation.com. I'll chat to you soon.